invite you as always to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. We're working our through this extended longer chapter as Jesus is in the midst of yet another discourse with those who are in opposition to him. And this morning, uh, the, the title is, is meant to be startling. It's meant to get our attention, How Not to Die. We're going to learn how not to die. Now, I'll explain what that means as soon as we read the passage together, but I think once you hear the Word of God spoken, hopefully you'll understand uh, what we're looking at in the text of Scripture here this morning. We're looking at verse 21 to 30. Let's read it together. So he, this is Jesus, said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to them, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed. Father, we thank you, especially for this conclusion that though there were, I'm sure, many opposers, there were many, it says, that have believed. Lord, it's, it's, it's a simple yet profound faith that you present to us. It's simply that we would believe that you are the Christ and everything about who you are and what you came to do, for which we are eternally grateful. So I pray, Lord, for any who might not know you, that they would listen very carefully. They may have been in churches for a long time, but maybe they still do not know you. I pray that through these repeated statements that you've been giving through John's gospel, that they will penetrate the heart, even the most calloused hearts, that they would see you as you bring the light of the truth into their hearts, and that what they see is the resplendent beauty of Jesus Christ and what you've done for us all. So Lord, help us now as we work through this portion of the text. Give us clarity, I pray. I pray above all for accuracy, but Lord, that you would add the efficacy this, to this word. Only you, Lord, can pierce our hearts, and you're willing to do that if we would come with ears to hear. We ask this for your glory's sake. Amen. Psalm 92.5 says, How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. 
And that psalm, that verse came to mind when I was thinking about this text. And the discourses that we've been through so far with Christ as he's taking on his opposers and explaining over and over again with, I would say, great patience who he is as they're repeatedly rejecting him. So only God can declare something with that has a deep profundity to it and yet stated so simply, so plainly, so unquestionably understandable, so unassailably true, so profound and yet plain, deep and complex that will take the greatest of theologians the rest of their life to unscrew that which is inscrutable in the mind of God. And yet, it's plain enough for our children that we just sent downstairs to understand. It's really very plain. Something that innately every human being knows that there's something fundamentally wrong with them. And that if they would simply believe in who Jesus is as the Christ, they would be saved. They, they would be saved. They would confess their sin before him, be grateful that he paid for those sins, and they would be saved. So simple, yet so profound. And that's what this text presents to us here this morning. It's no different than the other ones we've been through. As a matter of fact, we, he's, it's repetitive. But there's a reason for that. Even in Peter's epistle, you'll recall that he wrote that, I, I, these things you know, but I bring them back to your remembrance. We were talking in first hour about the importance of our being reminded of things that we've known for a long time, but we need these repeated reminders. And so it's the same with them as we're seeing in here. So this particular portion of his ongoing discourse is very jarring. This particular spot is very, I mean, he's ratcheting it up, right? I mean, the serious nature of it. Where I'm going, you cannot come you will die in your sins when the Son of God is lifted up. They knew what that meant. They knew who he was talking about, and yet blind, remaining blind. But there were some there that day. We know from the end of this text in verse 30 that many got it. The light came on, and they understood everything that he had been saying, and they're saved. Just an absolutely amazing thing, even though this is very painful to read because so many uh, continue to reject him. So in this, his stark warning comes to the Jews that are assembled there. It's as though he's saying, I'm going away soon because you're rejecting me and eventually you're going to kill me. You're going to kill me because you reject who I say that I am and I've become an offense to you. That's essentially his message as we've been going through these discourses in John, and it'll lead right up to his being crucified. For those who continue to reject Christ, this message is very timely. Because sometimes people, there are those who, you know, the first time they get the gospel, whenever that was, it, it was well-received, they're transformed. It's amazing. Many of us, might be some of us in here, or we know of somebody who, when the, when the gospel came, when the truth came, the light came on, and there, it was dramatic. But for others, they, it, it, and I've used the analogy of that, that drill when they were making the highways through the granite mountains of North Carolina, they had to drill and drill and drill and drill and drill until that moment that God appoints providentially, he 
packs the dynamite in and pop, there it happens. And that's what we're seeing here. So what we're actually seeing isn't Jesus trying to make a point. I'm just going to, he's not being uh, tenacious. He is in the sense that he's trying to get through to them. But what we're seeing is the grace of his patience. He's told them over and over again where we've been already in the text. And he's saying the same things over and over again. I'm like, okay, how do we make this new? He's been saying this over and over. Oh, I get the point. That's how dull we are. Got it. And it's that way for them. And there's, then there's a parting of the crowd, right? Many believed, and then there's those who go on and ratchet up their evil to, to have him crucified. So there's a decision to be made here. Clearly, these, these, these statements are eye-opening. You will die in your sins. Some people, you'll say that, and they'll break down crying, and, and they get it, and some people will just look at you in the eye like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Or, better said, maybe that it's willful. I don't want to know what you're talking about, so I'm just not going to agree with you, right? That's, that's the point. But here's the thing. It brought a particular verse to mind from the Old Testament. When God appealed and appealed and appealed, and there was those, uh, they're referred to as the antediluvian uh, people who lived, that means before the flood, right? And so we see Genesis 6, where he ends up flooding the earth. But before he, he does that, in verse 4, of course, is very telling. He says, it was, there was nothing but evil in the heart of man continually. But he says in verse 3, before that, the Lord says to them, this should really be jarring and eye-opening. My spirit shall not strive with man Forever. Ephesians 5 talks about a window of time. Make use of the time. Make use of the period of time that you had. And that's what they're being given here. They're give, being given a period of time to hear who he is, to admit that and confess their need of him and recognize him as Messiah. And so far they're not doing it, but there will be a time. And he makes that point over and over again too, doesn't he? He's making it here. I'm going to go away. Yeah, they're going to send him away. They're going to be, he's going to be sent away on a, on a sentiment of hatred. I hate what you're saying. I, you know what? I don't like you. And so we're going, to, we're going to go ahead and we're going to have you executed. It's just amazing how deep uh, hate can go over against the contrast of love, how high love can sail when we confess these things and recognize who he is and come to Christ and be reconciled with God. So embedded in this passage, then, is this, the answer to this question, how can I avoid dying? How can I avoid dying? And if you're all thinking to yourself, um, well, we're all going to die. So obviously, the, yeah, I'll clarify. So obviously, we're all going to die physically. We're talking about spiritually here. There are two constituent parts that make up a human being are both physical and spiritual. How can I not die spiritually because I know the, the price humanity is going to pay to God ultimately is I'm going to die physically. I'm aging, we get diseases, we get sick, and we will ultimately die. But there's another part of me. God is spirit, and the place he dwells is spiritual. It's pure. How can I not die there and make it there? That's the answer to the question. He couldn't make it more plain or more powerful than he's doing right here. One day we're all going to die. 
physically. So where do I stand on that other question? Where do I stand on the spiritual question? Because we are all going to die. And so a question some, some of you use uh, and have used effectively with regard to your evangel, and that is, do you ever think about where you're going to go when you die? That's an effective question, isn't it? Get them thinking about it. Well, we'll just die, and it's a, we're, we're annihilationists. We just we, we live, we exist, existentialists, then it's over, right? No, that's not true, because you know there's a spiritual component. Even the pagans in our culture know that there's something spiritual. There's something spiritual about creation, about man. There's something spiritual about human beings. And then from there, they just go off into all kinds of wacky directions. But it's true. It's true. So our passage before us has us reasoning with what Jesus is actually saying when he says, I have come down from heaven. When he says, um, I want to uh, have you understand who I am, and I want you to understand who you are. It's to keep us from eternal death. That's what it's all about. There couldn't be a more important, is there any more important question on the planet in our lives than that one? He's dealing with the most important question anybody could ever wrestle with, and we should all wrestle with that question. I spent the first 33 years of my life deliberately avoiding that question. Turn up the noise, I don't want to talk about it, and there we go. Live your life the way you want to, as we were talking about in the first hour. But for the Christian, and you all know this, for the Christian, the moment they do physically die, and we all will, where does their spirit go, the true Christian? With the Lord, right? Didn't Paul make that clear? Absent from the body is what? Present with the Lord. It's instantaneous. It isn't like we got to, there's going to be some kind of transition period. I think Christians can, can wrestle with that. It is absolutely, utterly, and perfectly instantaneous. So I like to just call it a threshold. You're here, you're dying, and then you're there as soon as you die, when he appoints that moment. So, so the question that is answered here is what do we do with the question of, okay, so my body's going to die, but where, how do I spend eternity in heaven with God? So this is the crucial question we all have to face. And I love the way, because I have a simple mind, I love the way that the scriptures put things in antithesis. It's either this or it's that. It's either light or it's, yeah. So it's, things are put very plainly and very in, in bold contrast to each other. And if you've noticed in the passage, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. You are from the world, I am from heaven. So that's the plainness of it. The profundity is, what is he talking about? What does that all mean? We try to wrap our minds around that. But this antithesis, this contrasting, Matthew 12, 30, for example, whoever is not with me, what? Is against me. There's no neutral category. Well, my sweet grandmother, who at this point rejects Christ, um, but she's, you know, she's a good person. Um, if, if you're not with me, you're against me. I looked, believe me, believe me. I searched the scriptures in hopes of finding a third category. How about somebody who's just a sweet person that serves a lot? They're kind all the time. How about that? That category, friends, does not exist. 
It doesn't exist. You're either with me or against me. Whoever does not gather with me does what? Scatters. That's what we do in our flesh. We scatter things. We break them up. We blow them apart. We're good at that. So that's the contrast that he's setting before them. John, if you remember from chapter 3, verse 18, whoever believes in him, this is John the Baptist, so he's talking about Christ, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. So we have the contrast there. It's very plain so that we're without excuse, as Romans 1 says, fallen man is without excuse because it's very plain to us that we have a problem and that there is a God and one day he will judge. Every person in the, on the planet, if they're caught in an honest moment, will confess those things, those fundamental things. So the point is, what am I going to say when I stand before that one that we call God, who's the creator? And I know I didn't life, live the life that he called me to. I know I'm actually, I, I, can, I can probably go a little further just even in my paganism, my dead and blindness to say that the way I am living is not pleasing to him, right? What do I do about that? Because we all have a sense, a conscience that we're given. Romans 2 and verse 15 makes that clear. Our thoughts either what? There's that contrast. It's what? It's either accusing or excusing. It, see, it's... It's simple math. That's why I love it. It's easy to understand. That's a conscience. So where do we stand with these things? John 16, verse 8 and 9. And when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, this is Jesus talking to the disciples now before he ends up being crucified. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, uh, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they did not, they do not believe me. So the issue of this being a matter of faith only, of belief in Christ, of trusting, those are the three synonyms you want to remember. They're all saying the same thing. If I have faith, I believe who he is and what he says is true, and I trust in him implicitly and completely, comprehensively and entirely that I will be in heaven when I die. That's what he's presenting to them. That's love, isn't it? That's grace. That's mercy that he continues to repeat himself. And that's the introduction. Verse 21. So he said to them, notice the word, again. <laughs> that makes the point. Jesus is repeating what he said to them in um, chapter 7 verse 34 if it sounds familiar it should in chapter 7 verse 33 and 34 i will be with you a little longer then i am going to him who sent me so that's exactly what he's saying here just maybe slightly different but the same point he's making over again you will seek me and you will not find me verse 34 where i am you cannot come so if we draw our attention to the repetitive nature of the discourses of Christ, we have to pause to say there has to be an important reason. There has to be an important reason. I, I think there could be several that are pointed out that would be necessarily true. And as I've stated them already, it's the patience of God. It's his kindness. It's his benevolence. It's his mercy, his grace, his forbearance how he carries sinners. 
As 2 Corinthians 5 points out, he wasn't counting our sins, our transgressions against us while Christ was coming to die for us. Why would he do that? Or Romans 5, 8, that while we were yet what? Sinning, Christ died for us. Why would he do that? See, that's the point. Why would he keep repeating this? Why not state the case? These are the religious intelligentsia. Uh, state it once and move on. Because he loves them. That's why. He loves them, and he's telling them over and over again, even with full knowledge, that they're going to kill him. They don't, they don't like one thing about him. They want him gone. Stop the words. I don't want to hear them anymore. Get away from me. I am going away, he says, and you will seek me. Think about that statement for a minute. Because it doesn't seem to make sense at first reading. I am going away, and you will seek me? So there are those who hear of Jesus. They either hear of him or they hear from Jesus, and they seek him, right? There's a lot of people that are following John the Baptist and then following Jesus. I mean, whole crowds of them, maybe even thousands at some point when he's feeding and all of those times, they're following him. There are thousands of people called Christians right now. They hear him. They hear about him, and they're intrigued, and they follow him. I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. So they're intrigued, and they're following him. But that when they go to him, they only accept parts of who he is, parts of what he has to say. Because when he gets to talking about other parts that disrupt their lifestyle or disrupt what their presuppositions, challenges the presuppositions, challenged of what they thought was true or right, now they, they want to argue with him. And they're not liking it. And there's, there's something beginning to well up in their sinful hearts that's not good. What is that? I want, I want this doctrine that he talked about. That's why I'm following him. But now I'm in a place where I'm hearing this and I'm hearing that. And man, I'm not, I'm not down with that. I'm not, I'm not signed on for that. This is too close for comfort. This is getting too close to the internal parts of me that, quite frankly, they're private. And I don't want tinkered with. They imagined him a certain way. So they're rejecting things that would threaten their way of life or threaten their former understanding of what the gospel is or for what specific doctrines that he teaches. When you stay at the word of God long enough, he's going to get to you. Why? He loves you. This life is all about purification, friends. If we do, in fact, really know him, but you get challenged at some point like he's doing with them, and it's like, I'm done. I'm done with it. You're going to go? No, I'm not going to go. He's going to go. We're going to kill him. It's, it's hard 
because this is a stunning passage that's getting closer and closer to the crucifixion. So his statements are getting stronger and stronger and stronger in the truth that continues to challenge them and challenge them and challenge them. And it doesn't have a good ending for their sakes, does it? They kill him. So here's the point. I made this in the first hour. I have it in the outline for you so that you can have it. You must accept the whole Christ as revealed in Scripture in order to be saved. Not a partial Christ. You must accept the whole Christ. And I mentioned Sinclair Ferguson's excellent book, The Whole Christ. Highly commend that to your reading. It's the whole Christ that, let me ask you this. I'm asking myself now, just kind of thinking out loud with you. What parts of Jesus did he sacrifice on the cross for our salvation? Certain parts? The whole thing, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Aren't you glad? Oh, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Because if he didn't give me all on the cross, I would wonder which parts he didn't get to. Because there's a whole lot of sin here. It's the whole Christ that has to be embraced all the way up till glory. And if you follow him, his word continuing to come into your life is going to challenge you more and more. And if it doesn't do that on a regular basis, you're in a dead church, my friends. You're in a dead place. If it doesn't rankle you from time to time, if this isn't hard for you, this is really uncomfortable. All I can do is spend time thinking about the things that I just disagree about with what he's saying. I, I just don't want to hear it anymore. You going to leave? No, I'm not going to leave. He is. We're going to crucify him. He needs to stop talking. That's all there is to it. But this is probably the most startling clause of all in this verse, in verse 21. You will die in your sins. You talk about laying it out. You talk about uh, a newthetic approach to counseling. Wow. I can't believe what you just said. You know what? Say it again and we got a problem. Whoa. What's that? What's that rustling up in my heart? Anybody want to give it a shot? That's what he brought you here for. That's why you're here. Again, why? Because why would he do that? And the great barrier between you and your God is that mountain of pride that you're wrestling with, that I'm wrestling with. Jeremiah 11 you're struck by how many times in the Old Testament he, God warned his people. It's over and over again. I've got a couple of examples here, but you can, the reason it's important to hear now is because you can hear that echo in what Jesus is saying to them in just shorter, more succinct, gentle, but very, very piercing language. This is him. The prophet Jeremiah said in 11, verse 7 and 8, I, for I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently. Note the language. Over and over again. 
even to this day, saying, Obey my voice. That's his winnowing fork. I'm going to winnow out those who followed me so long until the, some of the things that I'm saying are a challenge to them, and they say, Am I going to be broken and humble by this so I can get to the cross and have it reconciled? Or is, no, I'm done with this, and they're gone. And that's what he's doing. He's got his winnowing fork going, and that's what it is. It's his word. That's what we see right here. It's always a challenge. Yet they do not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, I brought upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded to do them to do, but they did not. A few verses, a couple of verses later in chapter 11 of Jeremiah, verse 10 and 11. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. You see, that's the thing. That's the, that, that's, the, that's the Genesis 6 verse 3. My heart won't always strive with you. So I was mentioning how we're enjoying his, his patience to tell them the same things over and over again, but he's making it very clear in Scripture at the same time. I, I created time. I have you on a time frame. There's going to be a time where I'll say, you continue to reject me, I'm done with you. And then he says this, though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. Folks, this is gut-wrenching. This should be heartbreaking to us. Eternal separation from God, that's what we're talking about for the unsaved. This ought to be terrifying to them. Therefore, it's incumbent upon us to warn them, isn't it? Ezekiel 3, 18 and 19. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, does that sound familiar? Yeah, he just said it in our text. So it's being echoed by Jesus in his discourses. You shall surely die. He doesn't soft pedal that. He doesn't, well, let's talk about this. You know, let's talk some more. And you're going to surely die if you continue the way you are. And I don't know. And we had a dear sister in Christ who was telling her story about saying that to somebody who is embracing egregious sin. You need Christ, she finally says. You need Christ. You will surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn to the wicked from the, his wicked way in order to save his life. And she did. She did her part. I'm sure she prays for him and for his husband. That wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. My hand? Yes, because you loved yourself more than you, I would have you love them because they're perishing, and that should terrify us. Because of that, their blood is on you. But if you warn the, if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. You remember Acts 4.12, it gives us the only way. It gives us the only hope of salvation. When Peter said to the Sanhedrin in Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in whom? 
no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's it. He is it. So when people say, well, you Christians, you only have one way to get to heaven. I think there's many. No, I, I don't have one way. You know what? Actually, I would like there to be a number of ways, wouldn't you? You've got family members and friends that are perishing. One way. That's what he said. It's through him and him alone. That's it. And we trust that if they belong to him, when we speak his name in our evangel, that the lights will come on. Praise the Lord. And maybe not right then, but we continue. We see his repetitive nature. We see his forbearance. We see him continuing to repeat himself to us. So let's not stop praying for them. Let's not stop witnessing for Christ. They're so desperate is their need. Hebrews 2, 3 to 4. Otherwise, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to, and attested to by us, by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And this is what we've seen all the way through these chap first eight chapters of John. He's proven over and over and even appealed to them. If you don't believe me, believe the works. He loves them. He wants them on board. He wants them to simply accept the simple gospel, but they won't. They can't. They refuse because of their pride. I'm not going to do that because I would have to change the way I live. If somebody would have just walked up to me on the streets of Manhattan back in the 1980s and said, hey, you want to become a Christian? And I said, what's to it? Well, you got to give up everything. All the stuff I'm engaging in? Uh-uh. Nope. He didn't give up on me. There was nobody there. There was nobody giving me the gospel that had to take me trying to end my life. When a man, a man has to come to the end of himself, and that's M-A-N-N, a man has to come to the end of himself before God can do anything with him. And friends, that's true. That is so true. You have to exhaust all of your own resources. You're going to run into this wall, and he'll let you run into that wall. It's like my dad. I come from a line of three generations of Wisconsin farmers, and he, used to, he was one of those that walked to school, right? He'd pull a horse that my aunt would ride on the horse, and he would pull the horse. Yeah, Wisconsin winters, uphill in the snow on the way there and uphill on the snow on the way back. You hear the stories. But one day he passed a farm, and there was a, I'll never forget this, such a graphic story. There was a bull, and the farmer had created a thick oak door that leads into the barn. So in those crazy winters, he could go in, and it was on a hinge, and then he could go out. Well, he had hit that door just right, and that door went up like that and slapped him on the backside. And he turned around, and he just took his horn, and he hooked it under, and it went up and smacked him again. And he turned around, and he hit that thing with his horn, and it went up and smacked him on the butt again. He said, I looked at that in horror until there was blood shooting out of the bases of its horns. When I became a Christian, I thought, that's me. That's me. The rendering truck almost had to come for me. Praise God it didn't. He did. He 
He did. He brought that open door. I brought it on myself, but he allowed that to happen. And they're not listening. There's going to be blood shooting out of their horns. They'll reject him so often, so many more times, and then they'll kill him. We thank God that that's actually what happened. It had to happen, right? For salvation, that had to happen. It's sobering and it's humbling, but it had to happen. Hebrews 12 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. He's talking through his word. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. The warnings continue. They continue from heaven, don't they? Then he says this, where I am going, you cannot come. Basically, Jesus is saying, I'm going to heaven and you're not. That should get their attention. But he said this, as I mentioned in John 7, but I'll give you the fuller passage from it. He said the same thing in 7, 34 to 36. You will seek me and find me. You will not find me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And he says in verse 35 to 36, the Jews said to one another, where does this, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? So they're even asking similar kinds of questions in our text. It's the same thing over and over. When would you or I give up and say, oh, you know what? I'm done. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 says, seek the Lord while he may be what? Found. Call upon him while he may be what? Near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, and he will abundantly pardon. Who can reject such a salvation? Who could do that? Well, there but for the grace of God go who? Us, yeah. Ezekiel 18, 27 to 29. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed. He shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. <laughs> oh, house of Israel. By the way, do you want justice? Just curious. What do you want? Grace. grace. Give me mercy. You who are rich in mercy because of your great love for us, make us alive in Christ. That's what I want. That's what I want. You were saying the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? In, in his, and yet in his mercy and his patience and his unfailing love, God makes another passionate, yet another, in Ezekiel, 
makes another passionate appeal to them. It, he ratchets up the passion. You can see the love. You can hear it in this passage. That was Ezekiel 18. This is Ezekiel 33. So we're way down the line in this prophet, and he still wants the same thing. He wants them to repent. He wants them to come. He's not pleased with anybody's perishing. None. And he says it clearly. Say to them, Ezekiel 33:11, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die? Why will you die, O house of Israel? Peter put it more succinctly, of course, in his sermon in Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Or Paul in Acts 26, 20, to, to King Agrippa, remember this? Declare, he, where he declared first, he was telling his story, he was making his case, his apologia, he's making his defense to King Agrippa, he's telling him. He declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles. What? Here's the purpose clause, that... They should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. All the way through the Old Testament, from Genesis 6 all the way through the prophets, major and minor, all the way into the New Testament with Jesus, through the Gospels, on into the epistles, same thing. Why will you die? So he's gracious, he's patient, he's merciful to say these things over and over to the ones who probably be the very hands, the wicked hearts for sure, that summon up the Romans to have him crucified. Verse 22, so the Jews said, this is hard to read right here, I'm sorry. Will he kill himself? What a horrible thing to say. Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. You, you reach depths of depravity, wickedness, and evil that are, are too frightening to peer over into that chasm. Proverbs 1, 23 to 26, listen to this. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit upon you. I will make my words known to you because I have called and you refuse to listen. Have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror strikes you. He's saying, you're going to do that with me when my son comes. I'm going to do it to all of you who reject him up to his death. Verse 27, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish comes upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me, there it is again, they will seek me diligently, this text says, but I but will not find me. 
So you get that there's a window of time. There's an amount of time that they are not only rejecting, but mocking him, insulting him. And that will end. And who will have the last laugh? And it will be terrifying. Verse 29, because they hated knowledge, did not choose the fear of the Lord. Oh, that's the issue. You didn't fear the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and despised all of my reproof. That's it. If we feared the Lord the way we should, would there be any sin? If everybody feared the Lord the way we should, not a terrified, servile fear, but that wonderful, powerful, reverential awe-struckness of our familial fear. Who would sin? That's how brazen they are. That's how brazen we are. Paul says it. I keep trying to juxtapose the Old Testament statements that echo on into the New Testament. Paul said the same thing when he said in Acts or in Romans, rather, 3, verse 18, that's the whole section from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through the end of chapter 3. It's the universality of sin and condemnation for all of mankind. He's wrapping it up now, and he's talking about the wickedness of their tongue, the evil things that they say, their wicked hearts. And then he says this, and I thought this was the first time I read this, I thought, that's it. So he says the first clause in verse 18, the way of peace they have not known. You don't know the way of peace. If you read before that, you'll hear the description of their mouths and their throats that are like an open grave and their tongues that are like, have the venom of asps. It's poison. So the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's amazing how brazen sinners can be. Give no thought to God and his disapproval. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Verse 23, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Is he boasting about something here? No, no, no. No, he's saying, understand that the place that I go, I would love to have you there with me, but you can't because he's showing the contrast between their fallen state, their earthiness, their worldliness. You can't get there on your own righteousness. It will not, it cannot ever happen. He's still extending his grace. He's still giving them the truth by drawing a contrast, juxtaposing it in bold relief so there's no mistake in it. But you are worldly. I am from heaven. You are from below and I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. But by his grace and the richness of his mercy, once again, he's overlooking their insults. Will he kill himself? He's overlooking their insults because of his grace. That's what grace does. That's what grace does. Overlooks their insults and instead establishes this vast, insurmountable difference. It's the difference between here in time, between here in eternity, or in distance from here in infinity. 
It's immeasurable, in other words. <clears throat> Jesus is telling them the crucial reason why they must believe him. This is grace. Grace speaks the truth in love. Because they are not fit for heaven. He knows that. That's why he came. Remember? John 3, 31 to 34. Again, John the Baptist, his forerunner, his messenger that God sent, is echoing the same thing. So from Genesis to Revelation, it's the same thing. Listen to this and see how familiar it sounds according to our text and what we look at even in the Old Testament. Chapter 3, 31 to 34. He who comes from above, he's talking about Jesus, is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthy, earthly way. <clears throat> if you don't understand this morning why he does that, why Jesus just said that to them, you're going to miss something and you're going to think, what's he talking about here? Yeah, like that's obvious. I'm from earth and he's from heaven. Okay. Get the contrast. There's nothing on this fallen earth that will ever find its way in heaven, no matter how righteous it thinks it is. Never. He goes on. He comes from heaven and is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. So when the ones that receive his testimony realize this is truth. This is truth. Because these words that we have been given come from above. And to were to believe that. Part of our belief just isn't in Jesus came to save me from my sins. It's so that you will have your life transformed by his continuing, ongoing, inspired, living, active word, which came from heaven, which came from the Father. Verse 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God. And that's what we hold in our possession by his grace, by his divine providential superintendence until the full canon of Scripture was finally assembled. We don't add to it, we don't subtract. Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. This is past tense, right? I've already told you this. I told you that you will die in your sins, for unless you what? Here's the hinge pin of the whole passage. Here's the whole point. The whole point of John's gospel he makes in chapter 21. These things are written that you might what? Believe. That's it. <clears throat> That's it. That you might believe. You'll die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. You will, die, you will die in your sins. It's repeated over and over. It's very clear. Unless you believe. This is the key to never dying, folks. This is the key right here. But instead living forever. Forgiven, pure, holy. Imagine the complete absence of any hint of sin. It's gone. There will be no memory of it. It's gone. John 3.18, as I mentioned, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever, does, whoever, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. He didn't come to judge. He said that. I, I, why? Because judgment's already come. Guilty. Guilty is charged. 
They're condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. A few verses later in John 3:36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. They have it. That moment that they truly believe, they have it. But again, you've got people like the ones in our text who continue to follow. They're, they continue to be intrigued. They've followed maybe so long that they call themselves Christians. He challenges them and challenges them. And there are those, as I said, that are peeling away. And the ones that peel away, are they peeling away happily? No. No, they're full of vindictiveness, with venom, with poison and hatred. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Oh, there it is. <laughs> you would think it would say, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life. Is that what it says in verse 36? It, no, it says, <laughs> whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not what? Obey. That's his winnowing fork, friends. If we get to the point, he's going to keep challenging us. We get to the point where we're like, uh-uh, I'm not on for that. I'm going to find a problem with what's being said here because I don't like that. And so they're looking for ways to find a hook in him. And they have to make one up, don't they, ultimately, so they can kill him. So the voice is finally silenced. And they're left in their misery. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains in him. Verse 25, so they said to him, Who, who are you? <laughs> Indeed. Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. Oh, how patient he is. Isn't that amazing? I just think of what I would say by then, and I'm like, oh, don't say it. Don't think it. Verse 26, I have much to say about you. And much to judge, I'll bet. But he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. In other words, that the judgment of God has already been rendered, and that mankind is sinful and hell-bound. But the Father has sent his Son to be the propitiation for those sins, that they might have life, those who believe in him, and follow him, demonstrated by their obedience to his word. So now they're saved but it shows how much they love him. Those who love me do what? John 14, 15. Those who love me what? Keep my commandments. That's not legalism, friends. That's just the outward expression of a transformed life. I love him. I love him. And so I should obey him with humility and conviction. Verse 27, they did not understand. <laughs> will, will anything do it for them? They'll have to have God's intervention, won't they? He would have to wake their heart up to understand. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Back to John 7 again. John 7, 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will. See, that's the obedience part. I know I really want to follow him. Well, that means you abide by his word with humility and gratitude and love. 
If, if anyone has that will, Jesus is saying, if you have that will to do God's will, not say God's will, not champion parts of God's will, not compartmentalize your faith, live your life your way, if you really want to give up your life, if you're ready to sacrifice your life like he sacrificed his for you, well, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Just some private agenda. Or is this the very words of God? Either is or it isn't. It either is or it isn't. Verse 28, so Jesus said to them, wow, Okay, you see it getting more serious here. When you have lifted up the Son of Man. For what? What's his, what's his crime? Tell him. Don't make something up. Tell him what his crime is. What has he done? No. He's loved them. That's what he's done. When he, you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Therefore, we, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, ought to have as our constant ambition to be pleasing to him. Are we pleasing him? Are we? Verse 30. Praise the Lord as he was saying these things, many believed him. Why not all of them? Why not? They all know their condition. They all know the sinfulness of their hearts. But no, that'll carry on now through to chapter 18. He'll make his high priestly prayer, and then they'll crucify him. But right now, we're rejoicing in the many, aren't we? We are rejoicing in the many. Great is his grace, his mercy, his love. So now, as I mentioned at the beginning, the crowd is split in two, isn't it? He's made that clear to us. Those who believed in him and those who rejected him. Close with two passages here this morning. Listen to Micah 7, 18 to 19. This, is, this passage struck me at this moment of, at the end of our passage. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. Again, again. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And when God forgives, do you know what he does? He chooses never to bring it up again. That's forgiveness. And aren't you thankful for that? I know I am. Never to bring it up. Your sins and iniquities I will forgive. 
And remember them what? Remember that. He doesn't bring your sins up, former sins. You and I do. And we should stop that. Because it came at great cost to secure that forgiveness. I don't bring it up to my mind. I don't bring it up to God. I don't bring it up to the person. I don't bring it up at all. It's forgiven. Matthew 13, 40 to 43, and we're done. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with a fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous shall shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Father, we thank you so much for your word. It brings healing, it brings hope, it, but it's sobering, it's painful to hear. We're only reminded of what the great cost is because of the depths of our sin. I pray, Lord, for the crowd that we have, so to speak, of those who hear this, this message from your word. Your word is alive. You've delivered it now. You've delivered it straight to our hearts. So if there are any who were not before now saved because they had not gone to you recognizing who you are, whether they're listening online or they're here today and present, I pray, O oh Lord, I pray with all my heart that they would open up their hearts, they would have ears to hear, that they would see you for who you are, and that they would be reconciled with you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.